Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts, in this week for Andrew Proctor. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week's program is the second of three in this season's series with Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Artistic Director Nataki Garrett is back on the mic, this time in conversation with playwright Dominique Morceau whose new production, Confederates, will be on the OSF stage this fall, directed by Nataki. Confederates explores racial and gender bias in America through the parallel stories of two women living over a century apart, an enslaved Black woman turned Union spy, and a brilliant professor in a modern-day university. Nataki and Dominique discuss their experiences as Black women in contemporary theater and the challenges of that space. Part of their discussion centers on the work to widen the audience for theater and other artistic performance. They speak candidly about the importance of not only experiencing other lives, lives different than your own, in art, but especially the critical importance of seeing oneself. Dominique said that she started writing Confederates because she needed to see herself, a Black woman, in history. Let's join Nataki and Dominique. Dominique, will you tell us a little bit about yourself as a uh, as a writer, as a thinker, as a person with a political mind, um, as a family member? Who are you? <laughs> um, I'm so I'm those things. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a mom. <laughs> I'm a wife. I'm a playwright, an actor, a poet, an activist, and uh, I'm a woman. I'm a black woman. And a lover of stories. I am a lover of stories, of good storytelling. Yeah, I love that. And your stories are so filled with a kind of beautiful, loving, and generous focus on the life and spirit of Black people. You know, a a lot of the time when I watch and read your plays, I feel like um, I'm seen as a Black woman. I feel like I'm being seen. And the play that we're going to talk about a little bit later, Confederates, is probably the one that that I, I remember when I first read it and I was like, is this sister in my living room? Like, is she having these conversations <laughs> with me? Is she on my phone call? Um, because it is such a clear um, magnifier of Black female, Black women's existence um, from this from the particular lens of the play. I was introduced to you through the play Confederates. I was engaged in a conversation with the people who were running OSF um, prior to me, my predecessors, and uh, they sent the play to me um, before it was sort of released to see if I would be interested in directing it. And I knew about your work. I'd seen your work. I um, I have a couple of sister friends who had been in your work at other theaters um, across the country. And so I feel like I had a, a, a limited familiarity with your your particular voice as a playwright, but our first conversation was to talk about Confederates. And I remember feeling um, in, that, in that kind of way that uh, where, where reverence uh, meets admiration, meets like connection, feeling a little bit like um, a little uh, shy to express how I felt about the play and you because it was so... It's so it was so clearly your sort of loving gesture around the existence of black womanhood. And it's hard when you feel seen through the work, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, and you quickly, very, very early, very quickly, like laid it on the line. This is who I am. You know, this is who I'm going to be. I'm not going to be something else. And so um, from that point forward, all the things that I thought um, I loved about you as a writer and as a thinker and as a a political mind, um, all those things expanded. So I'm really excited about this conversation with you. I, you know, I, I feel like we met each other's legend, <laughs> you know, before we met each other. You know, I mean, yes. I just knew you as this, I'd heard about you as a 
black woman director. And then I had heard about you as the new black woman to be appointed in the artistic director position over there at OSF. And I was like, oh, wow. Yes. Come on. And, <laughs> you know, way to go. Uh, but I, and I just always, you know, and as your name had been echoed to me in the in the D.C. area, right, you just sounded like someone I'd want to get to know and want to meet. When you told me, uh, kind of what you just said a minute ago, which is like, you know, that uh, con- Confederates felt very resonant to your experiences, you know? And I was thinking like, yeah, well, because you've been in those like institutions, you've been in like predominantly yes. white institutions as a black woman in leadership, right? I have been in predominantly white institutions as both a student and a guest educator in a lot of spaces. And uh, and I was like, well, I think that there's stuff that's happening <laughs> like in all of these places that people are not talking about. And uh, and I but I and I was like, and it's not just it's not universities. This is like institutions, isn't it? You know, there's something going on with institutions and the way we build institution. Our first conversation and my first meeting of you just felt like, yep, and you know, here we go. Like we're we there's already a history. We have not even talked and we already share a history. Exactly. Exactly. That intersection is uh profound but also really disconcerting because what you're speaking to is the fact that there are so many of us black women um in these particular situations where we're encountering a very specific kind of harm and ridicule within these institutions. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, with any, any kind of institution, there is this idea that if you can just move yourself far enough ahead, there is this sort of point of freedom. So it's like you're, you're in this hope space seeking freedom, but, you're, but you have to sort of, you know, walk uphill in the snow both directions in order to get there. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's, it's, uh, there's sometimes I feel like there's some sort of metal for survival, but there isn't a lot of focus on the healing that happens after survival. Um, and there also isn't a lot of focus on making sure that you're, you're uh, laying down a, a foundational path so that other people who come behind you don't have the same experience. So what I find to be the most interesting about Confederates is it speaks to that path as a real thing. There's a real connection between past and present. And um, and it's a call to action in a way to say, hey, are we are we going to be a, 165 years out making it normal for these same things? You know, um, would you mind giving us a, a brief synopsis? Confederates is a play written by Dominique Morceau. It's an American Revolution Commission and to frame American Revolutions. American Revolutions was a commissioning program supported in part by the Mellon Foundation it started in 2008, and it asked playwrights to focus on moments of change in American history. And so this is Dominique's gift to uh, this conversation around American revolutions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it actually came from, so uh, Lou Bellamy at Penumbra Theater, at our esteemed Penumbra Theater in Minneapolis, reached out to me saying that he wanted to commission me in, co- in connection with with OSF, you know. And he his his impetus became mine, which was he had read this Ta-Nehisi Coates article that was talking about why, well, that was actually questioning why more uh, Black writers and, and, and Black, I guess, historians and storytellers don't study more the Black experience and the Black participation in the Civil War. Uh, And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. He's like, you know, for American revolutions, we want to explore that. And I said, you know, I always ask the question when you ask me, well, what were black people doing in this era? I go, and what were the black women doing? Because here's the thing. When I think of uh, Civil War, like when I think of stories that I grew up understanding, like what our experience is in the Civil War, I, I picture movies like Glory, you know. Or I see, you know, I learn of, of infantries, you know, black regiments and things like that. But I don't really hear, we're, black women are utterly invisible in those stories and, and, and also mm-hmm. in those, in, in the documenting of those histories. Like, we're just like, where were we? 
I was like, well, wasn't Harriet Tubman the union spy? And I'm like, what, what, where were we? You know? <laughs> and so, uh, so then I, I start wanting to know what black women's role was in our own liberation. Because I think what was for anyway, what I, whether or not Tanahasi meant this, what I felt convicted by in his questioning was, uh, why don't we know more about our own hand and our liberation? Mm. That's what I heard. <laughs> that, that was that was the question that I received. And I thought, well, yeah. Well, I do want to know what our role was in our own liberation. Because if you don't tell the story full and true, abolition is given more to the hands of white abolitionists than it is to Black liberation and freedom fighters who Mm -hmm. were architects of their own movement, who were architects of their own freedom. And so for me, that was important. And then just to look at myself as a Black woman and go, well, where's the the vision of me in that moment? That is not just through Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth, but I'm like, there are so many um, enslaved Black women who were rebels. Just like we didn't know Claudette Colvin for many years. We only knew Rosa Parks' name. Right. We invoked women who stood up in the civil rights movement and would not, you know, give up their seat, you know, for a white patron over themselves. You know, Rosa mm. Parks became the most iconic name. And now you see people kind of going back and going, Claudette Colvin was a teenager, you know. Um, and you're like, well... She was a single mom and she didn't have the picture of the, of the, you know, she didn't have the black respectability picture around her to be the face of the civil rights movement. But we're just not going back and going, well, and I go for it, not for every Claudette Coleman. It was like 10 other ones too. It was always, yeah. There, were, yeah. there are many unnamed rebels. They're not going to be the most famous and the ones who, you know, who had lightning strike them, you know, and the, and the perfect moment of light upon them when the movement was happening. But there are so many ways of resistance that were happening. And so I wanted to tell a story about two women, one an enslaved rebel who was growing more into her rebellion and becoming a, a union spy um, and, and, and fighting her way to freedom. Um, and then another one, a black woman professor in a contemporary co- uh, university, predominantly white university, uh, who is also navigating that space and that institution of higher learning um, Mm. in search of her own liberation. Um, So it's really about these two women navigating spaces um, of of institutional racism. And as the play goes on, the the line gets really thin between the past and the present. Yeah, I love that. And and you use this particular way of sort of discovering that as this uh, doubling in the play which I'm going to ask you about in a second. But first, I want to speak to this idea of this is not mine. Uh, a friend of mine who's a judge in uh, in Portland used this language a couple of years ago. And I was like, I think I understand what that means just because you use those words. Stealth work. There's something about this undercurrent of stealth work uh, that both Black women, both the one in, civil, in the Civil War times and the one who's in modern times, uh, where there, there, there's this like uh, connection to um, to work that is unseen by by the white gaze that is being questioned also by the people that that work is supposed to support. What do you think about this idea of stealth work and black women? Because it feels like it's a tool of women, in particular women of color. And and I I actually had to go back and think about the moments in my life where. I thought some black woman was, you know, was stepping on me, but what she was really doing was like stealth work, you know, mm-hmm. um, the ways in which she supported me on the other end was like profound when I actually mm-hmm. uh, opened my eyes wide enough mm-hmm. to see all the work that was happening. Can you speak to this idea of stealth work mm-hmm. in your play? Oh, that's, that's a, that's a deep thought because I, I, I've actually used the word stealth in a similar fashion, um, but maybe a little bit more uh, direct. You know, when you talk about <laughs> when you talk about literal bombs, right? You know, like, like <laughs> when we when we explode. Sometimes when we come, you know, people only respect the activists who explode, who are loud, and who have megaphones, and who come in letting you know that they're attacking. No one really um, 
respects or even considers that there are stealth bombs too, you know? Yes, yes. Not everyone is attacking a system with an announcement. <laughs> Come on. It, Come on with that. And uh, <laughs> so there are other ways in which you can have, uh, you can be, I think, a freedom fighter and working for not only your liberation, but other people's liberation, for other people's equity and justice. Um, and that doesn't always look like who's the loudest and who's the most radical, who's the most optically radical. Because radical is thought, right? It's actually, it's not it's not just behavior, really. It's thinking that's radical. Um, my husband and I mm. argue about radical all the time because <laughs> we argue about whether or not I am radical, right? And I'm like, I feel so minimally radical compared to, right? <laughs> you know, but everything is always <laughs> compared to. So <laughs> to him, I am completely radical compared to most of the people that we engage with in our daily lives. And I'm like, I don't know that that's fair or true. But then I go, when I think of who is like radical, like radical thinkers and radical actors, you know, um, I don't, I feel pretty modest, (laughs) feel pretty (laughs) modest, you know, but my thinking is, I do believe my thinking is radical. You know, um, and, and radical is a, a word that scares people sometimes. I think that they find a danger associated with radical, but radical just means a nonconformist, right? Like it means like there's something, um, a dramatic way of moving and thinking that will shake up what is normalized. And that's not bad. And that doesn't always come with danger or violence that that actually can come with grace and mercy and compassion and freedom. You know, um, and so in that way, yeah. I totally believe in that, right? And so, but to, to your question, I think inside of the play, two black women are having that navigation <laughs> in the professor's world, really in both worlds, and in both worlds, two black women are mm-hmm. having a conversation on whether or not they are stealth, or um, you know, or just a big old missile, you know, <laughs> a loud missile <laughs> or a stealth worker toward freedom um, because they are, one has, one seems more, I think, integrated into the system over the other, mm. in both systems, in the, in the institution of slavery and in the institution of higher learning. They both feel like one is more ingratiated into the system than the other and not recognizing each other's, both of each other's labor toward uh, liberation and their different approaches toward it, which I think is also important. Can you talk a little bit about the use of doubling? And you you can give away as much as you want to. Um, yeah. Uh, but I'm more really interested in the intended impact of the doubling, um, what it means to have that transformation uh, between one time and another time through the body of, of the character. So it's funny because so the main two characters, Sandra and Sarah, one an enslaved rebel and one the professor, they are the only two people in the play who do not double. They stay, Sandra stays in her contemporary world and Sarah say, stays in her, you know, Civil War world, you know? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But every other character, and there are three other characters, well, really six other characters in the play, are played by three different actors. And um, each of those characters goes back and forth between the past and the present. So you have a Black man character who is uh, the, the brother of Sarah, the enslaved rebel, but the student of Sandra, you know, you have a white woman who is the master's daughter to the enslaved rebel Sarah, but the student assistant to the professor, the black woman professor in the present. And then you have the black woman who is the uh, a fellow field enslaved woman in the in Sarah's world and a fellow colleague uh, but with a less, with an untenured colleague as compared to Sandra's tenure inside of the professor world. And so in each of these dynamics, what I'm interested in exploring is how the past and the present, how the dynamics shift or don't shift, you know, with men and women. We're looking at black men and black women and their status, status mm. shift from the past to the present, you know, um, and, and, and how sexism is infused inside of that or isn't, you know, depending on the mm-hmm. viewer. Um, we look at white women to black women in the past and the present and the status shifting 
that happens there. Um, and again, whether 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 allyship is or is not present, whether allyship even can or cannot be present there. And then we look at black women to black women and we look at where a status shift in the past and the present, or if there even is a status shift at all from the past to the present in those two different kinds of relationships. And then what socioeconomic status then means. So we're looking at a lot of things. We're looking at race, gender, class in this story through those three doubling roles. And for you, I mean, the, so the, there is the social intellectual impact of, of that. And then also I'm so curious about how it penetrates the heart space, because what you're also watching is these Black women's experiences with with these characters moving through time and and what it does to the spirit. I think it's important to, I, I don't want to give away in the play, but in the past and the present, between the two main characters, Sandra and Sarah, there's a very strong connective tissue between these women. Um, one is how they relate to their own bodies as women, and that's as much as I'll give away about that, mm-hmm. but they both have something that causes them to have a complicated relationship to their bodies as black women. And so they take that into everything that they do. It has defined them in both of their different worlds and how they um, are perceived, how they are trusted, and how they also can trust others, you know? Mm. Um, And then it also impacts how they are perceived by others. So how much people do or do not dump onto them Uh or project onto them and how much they then have to be the vessel of a lot of projections, you know, (laughs) projections from uh, men, uh, projections from white folks or white women, projections from other black women that, you know, who, again, you're not sure is a stealth or, or dynamite, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's really, um, and, and how much that, that navigation can impact their spirit, their wellness, can, can threaten to make them completely weary in their own life experience. Yeah, there's this uh, theme of allegiance that occurs, conflicting and, and intersecting allegiances to family, to gender, to racial identity, to social movements. Is it fair to say that the characters are facing an inner conflict between the loyalty to their communities and those intersections within themselves? Um, I, maybe the, the better question is, how do you relate to those ideas of this, these intersection, uh, intersecting allegiances? Uh, I, you know, I, I think that, well, one of the things is I think when you're a black woman in leadership, because leadership is the reason why those allegiances happen or that you feel mm, convicted by those allegiances, right? Because no one really cares when you're not in leadership. (laughs) What Mm -hmm. people resist is black women in leadership. That's when you have to like carry all of the stuff. (laughs) That's when you have to carry everybody's, you know, like all the baggage just gets hurled at you. Because you're in leadership and people have really, I in my own body experience as a black woman in leadership. And and that leadership means different things. It means like as an educator, if I've been a leader in the room, as a theater leader, you know, I'm, I'm the executive artistic producer of my hometown theater. But I also am a playwright in a very visible space as a playwright who, when I go into rooms, with my plays, I make it very clear that I'm I'm not a quiet playwright, that I am a participant in the production of my work. And that means in the thinking that goes around the work, you know, especially when I am in the town or when I am present or when I'm there, you know, but even when I'm not, you know, but especially when I'm there, or when I'm premiering a work or, you know, that I want to engage with the, uh, the theater administrative staff, you know, and talk about the plan around my work. And, uh, mm. and I, that has not always been met with willful spirit by all, <laughs> you know? Yes, I know exactly um, what you mean. <laughs> and I think we all struggle with that, but it's, but it's again, it's Black women in leadership, in any kind of leadership space, or even when I step up and I am a leader in my own experience, in my own life, that is almost too much for people sometimes. That's when you have to navigate all of that stuff, you know, all of the like, 
well, well, you're here. You should have allegiance with me here. Or we're aligned. We're both women or we're both black or we're both black women or we're both this or, you know, or we're none of those things. We share none of those things in common. And so um, why should I listen to you at all? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, it's like it's all of the above. Like, who are you to even talk to me? Like, I don't even have any respect for like your whole body existence. Like you just you've you've met nothing. So if you don't care, then you, you know, then no one will. So you better be the one to do the the speaking up and use your voice because no one, if they can't ignore you, they absolutely will. It's preferred. Yeah. So in that messaging, I have had to, I have a spirit of resistance. So that, that just, I immediately resist that, that messaging, but I definitely receive that messaging throughout my life in various ways. Yeah, I, I too um, have have that message uh, resounding uh, on almost a daily basis and even more so since I took this position as artistic director here at OSF that there is a, a tendency towards erasure, there's a tendency towards silencing, and that even more recently that, uh, that my well-being can be challenged. My actual life, um, you know, has been threatened. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the sort of general apathy around even taking it fully as a, as a real threat is, um, is really clear to me. Um, I'm curious about, you know, the, the place sort of looks at spans this time between the civil war and present day, there has been a lot of shifts in the world since you wrote the play to now, how uh, are you looking at the play now? And, and, uh, I know that there's a production that's um, it's going to premiere at the Signature Theater in New York next uh, winter. Are you rewriting? Are you are you are you in the room thinking about new things? I'm just so curious about where you are on the journey of the play. Well, yeah, I mean, I I don't know that it. I you know I keep reading the play because I actually this is one of my favorite things I've written. You know, I don't know. Everybody has their picks. You know, you're you're definitely not going to get me to pick like which child I love best or anything, you know, but, (laughs) but at the moment, you know, and and as it should be, the most recent thing I wrote is the thing I should be charged about, you know, um, Mm. I'm charged by this play because it just feels like it is, um, it is an opportunity for me as a writer. I have been the most raw and vulnerable and honest and defiant as I could possibly be inside of like my work, you know, inside of where I live in my work. Where I, where me and my work meet, mm. and so I'm, I'm super. So I'm excited about it, but I'm also like I'm, I'm, st- I'm a living, breathing vessel, you know, and and the play is too, and so every day things strike me, and I go back and I read. I go, do I need to add anything, or is that is that here? Is that is that because is that teased out in this monologue, or do I need to adjust this monologue? Is that teased out in this scene? Well, we'll see. I don't know anything yet. I haven't like I don't mm. have like a plan to rewrite right now because I don't know. It's like someone, I go back and I reread and I go, I, it could be in here. This might be it, you know? Or I might I might want to massage that just a little bit differently, you know, just to make sure it's saying the thing that I wanted to say, you know? And I don't know yet. I won't know until I'm hearing it, until I'm talking about it with other uh, artists, really smart actors and, you know, my directors, all these wonderful <laughs> directors we have, you know, you, uh, Story Ayers <laughs> is directing it at Signature and she's yes. genius. I'm going out to you see know? Story's version of it and I don't normally do that, oh, yes! but I want to see what Story yes. says about it. You know, you I know what I'm going to say about it. Or yes. I don't actually yes. know what I'm going to say about it, but I have a vision, but I'm curious about Story's vision too. Me too. <laughs> you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about all the visions of this thing because I, you know, because there's just so much you could be doing or not doing or, you know, it's like you, what I did, what I learned about it in a one, one reading in front of an audience that I did have, and it was an electric reading. I mean, I've never, I've had only one other reading of my play like that before in my life. And that was at uh, Detroit 67 at the public, you know, and that was mm. the, the reading that got that play produced at the public. But it's like that night when like just everybody in your community is out and they just all want to be there and they're just like on fire, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that was for a reading of a play and it was, you know, it was, it was a luxury. And when that happened, what I learned, because it was just a reading, um, that was directed by Goldie Patrick. And what, what I remember about that moment in time was this is just a reading and this audience is like, they, it's like they saw a whole play. It's like they saw a whole play. And I remember, and I saw a whole play watching the reading. And I was like, 
was like, there is a way that you can overdo this play, right? <laughs> like, there's a, it's possibly a way to overdo this play because now I'm, I'm realizing the story, if as much as you can keep people sitting in the, like, if they just stay in the story, they're already with it because the story itself is its own thing. It's moving in a way that excites me, you know? So, um, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see what that could do, but I'm also in the world because the world has changed or has it, you know, what really of late has really struck me again and again and again for the play are two things. Mm. Nicole Hannah-Jones and critical yes. race theory. Yes. And I said, my God, it's like my play all of a sudden became about Nicole Hannah-Jones. <laughs> and I wasn't trying. <laughs> I wasn't trying. But it suddenly became, I mean, it's, you know, there's a big conversation about black women in tenure here, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and, and, and the questioning that goes around giving a black woman tenure, you know, and I feel like with, uh, with women in Congress, I'm watching, I'm like, you don't want to hear this at all, but you definitely don't want to hear this out of their mouths. How dare they say a word to you and whatever that is, whatever is coming inside, like what's cause coming from the gut that yes. makes you just hate them on sight. You know what I mean? Hate them on sight. You know, yeah. racism is some deep stuff, right? But it's it's yeah. even it's deeper than racism. Sexism is some deep stuff. Misogyny is some deep stuff. Deep. And I think most people do not think that misogyny has even touched them. Do you know what I mean? They're just like, oh, I don't. I'm definitely not. I don't hate women. I know what I do. I don't hate. I don't feel like I hate you. Oh, so you don't feel like you hate me? <laughs> so what about what if I feel like you hate me? Does that matter? Yeah, exactly. What if my experience of you <laughs> feels like hatred? I often say, Dominique, that um, people discover their uh, anti-blackness and their misogyny about me on the way to meet me. They usually mm. discover it in the moment. Like you, you I might have a, a donor in the middle of crafting some sort of possibility of collaboration with us through their through their means. And in the middle of that, they go, oh, there's resistance. And they don't know what that is. What they say about it is, mm-hmm. I don't know the direction this is heading. They use this other kind of language. But what it really mm-hmm. means is mm-hmm. it, they, something just got rattled in their, in their consciousness. And that rattling is 500 years of convincing them that I am not uh, the conduit for their joy. Or I, the thing that I'm delivering mm-hmm. is not something they can consume. That's 500 years. Mm-hmm. The, the, the nation has worked very hard to assemble this thinking about Black women in particular that says that you should be grateful to be on the elevator with, with, with me. You should mm-hmm. be grateful to be on this elevator. And therefore, mm-hmm. because you're so grateful, your needs are not going to be met. And the thing that you should be happy about is you just get to be here. But that thinking is real. And I, it's just like, I don't know, if, I don't know how many people know what it feels like to be like, you can just feel that when you speak that you are despised before you even have an opinion, before, before your you, opinion ooh. is even made clear. Yes. It's yes. not about, it's not your opinion that's despised, that you are despised for having an opinion. What's fundamentally inside of white patriarchal supremacy is um, the authority to define reality. You know, Ooh, yes. and that's it. You get to define reality for everybody else. <laughs> you get to define. Ooh, so your experience word. of the world is everybody else's experience of the world. Because you get to define reality for us and we don't get to define it for you. And that's, that is the true oppression. You know, um, I think that we're experiencing institutionally. That's why people go, there's no such thing as institutional racism. The critical race theory is going to make us hate our country. And that's not true. And, you know, it's like. Because you want to define reality for everybody else. That is supremacist. Ooh, I'm going to put that in my pocket because sometimes you, you're looking for the words to be able to express it. Um, and I, and I, keep, I keep thinking this too because of the patronage of this theater that I run, the historical patronage. And because of that history here, um, you know, it's going to take a long time to even moderately shift that patronage, you know, so that it's more inclusive. Um, What I mean to say is the bulk of the people who come to OSF, um, the bulk of the people who go to the theater, but the bulk of people who come to OSF are, you know, older white people of means. And, um, Mm -hmm. and we have as a, as a, as a culture, as a, 
as a theater company, you know, in this in this town that this theater is in, we have really focused on nurturing that particular patronage, that group of people. And so I think about that, you know, because OSF is producing Confederates. It will open in, uh, in late August, I think the 23rd of August, and they'll run through the end of the season. And I think about that, like who's coming into the room? Because here's the thing is, I, I program plays because I want people like me to sit in the room and feel like it's for, it's for you, right? So when I programmed uh, Fanny, The Life and uh, Music of Fanny Lou Hamer, and I had a sister come up to me and say, you know, what's so interesting about this piece is that I, I just really didn't think that white people still needed to hear this. And I was like, I didn't program it for white people. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, they're here, you know, and that's great. But I really programmed it for you. You know, could you sit in that room and have an experience that is about you um, when you know the history of my organization, the history of theater says that you are actually the anomaly, not the person sitting next mm-hmm. to you. And so I'm curious about that for you. Your plays are done on Broadway. Your plays are done um, uh, at Penumbra and culturally specific theaters like that. Um, your, your plays are, are being done right now in this time where a lot of the Broadway audiences are local, but what they're experiencing as well is audiences are coming in from Dallas and up from Atlanta, Black people to see Black plays. Mm-hmm. You know, what is... More than what is the, the ones who are coming in from Connecticut and Massachusetts yes. right now. Right. Exactly. Those audiences have dropped off, actually. Yes, completely. And other audiences have come in the, in in their stead. And we have the audiences that we have ignored are the ones that are actually coming out to the theater. Part of your play being programmed at OSF for me is is at least it's a beacon that says this is for you. You should come here. You know, this is for you. I'm curious though for you as a playwright. You know, there there, there is an aspect to. Um, the American theater-going audience uh, as the status quo audience, the white, middle-aged, middle-class audience. There is something about that that feels so dominant that I feel like that that, that plays are programmed for two different ideas and two different reasons and two different schools of thought. So I'm curious in that sort of duality that plays have to exist in, especially... um, because I, I think the same is true for um, plays that are written by dead white guys, you know, that there as there is a duality. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious Absolutely. about your take on that duality and the impact of your particular play in that dual space. Because if there are two black women, women in the room, then your play for me serves that. Um, yeah. But knowing that those two black women in the room have to sit in a, sp- in a space in which they are the anomaly. I'm just curious about your yeah. thoughts about that. I'm I'm a, I'm a little tired of that. I'll I'll tell you this. I I think what where every time we have these conversations about audiences and theaters, I think it sounds to a very novice and uncultured ear or a very um non-critical thinking ear, like very quickly it sounds like uh we we don't want those old white people. And that is just like that would be just like such a oversimplification and a ridiculous idea. That isn't being so true by anyone, um, and I, I and I, I just want to name that because it's just it's uh, it's just a way to dismiss the nuance of what what's what's actually being called for, which is that when I have seen my work thrive, old white people have not been an audience by themselves, and they have not been the dominant audience, and they have had the time of their damn lives because of that, because of that, because they're not sitting in the room with just themselves. Because yes. What, theater gives you an opportunity to do is to sit in a room with other people from all kinds of walks of life and together you're having this one thing that no one else can have you're having a rare experience together with strangers not just strangers like oh i don't know you but we all kind of know each other's histories we, we share history but with people you don't share necessarily a same narrative with at all you don't share any cultural history with you know like you just i, I might maybe not even share language with right and yet we're all in this space now having a communal experience. There's nothing more humane. There's nothing more hopeful for humanity than to do that, right? Yeah. So for me, I'm exhausted by seeing an audience look like just one thing, especially when that, that one same thing that it's always looked like. What is happening? Why is it 2022? 
what what aren't we doing? How did this happen? And why are you comfortable with it? And when I have talked, you know, I did this at Lincoln Center because that's their audience for sure. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I think, you know, if you're competing for oldest, whitest, richest audience in New York, it's going to be a hard competition and Lincoln Center might win. You know what I mean? So that's like, that's, <laughs> that's how hard that is. And, and yet I talked to Lincoln Center's audience who, when my play Pipeline was there, and I said, do you, do you see who's sitting next to you? And do you want to see, do you want to see young people? Don't you yeah. want to see young people? If you want to see young people seeing this show with you, do you want to see how they would watch this show? I think you do. Wouldn't that be interesting if you feel that way? If you want to see young people and young people of color see this show, you know, come talk to me afterward. I got Lincoln Center's audience donated to a fund that we created at Lincoln Center. I so remember. Different audiences will come see that show. Now, I saw they didn't stop coming. They just now were sharing their space. Now, the thing was, they still thought it was their space to share, right? It was like, well, we're so happy to have them here in our space. <laughs> you know, it was like, yeah. I want you to know it's not your space. It should never have just been your space because money does not make something yours all the way, right? Something that's here for the people, you having the more money to, to, to feed into that. Money is, is um, privilege, does not give you more right to something. It gives you access. That's not the same thing, right? You know? It's so true. And so I think... Theater has um, allowed us to think, well, I built that theater. I paid, I gave all my hard work and money to that theater. So I, I own a stake in you. You are, that is, you are a piece of that, but you're no more a piece of that than the person who steps in there for the first time. Yeah. Out of some other different economic means that they, that it also belongs to them. I think you have, we have to learn to share people, you know, and when we're affluent versus not, we have to learn to share space. Theater can teach us to share. We have space. to learn to share. To do that. We got to mm-hmm. learn to share. And if theater can't teach that, nothing can. So I, I just, it, to me, I am quite tired of seeing that same old audience with nothing else um, added into the mix. And I, and I, I, as someone who also has, I'm on the board of Signature Theater. You know, I was on the board of Detroit Public Theater before taking a position there. But I'm still on. You know, I'm still a participant on all these things. And I know how hard it is to, to get people to the theater, to change the landscape of theater. I think we have to take more of a conscientious role in all our, our participation of theater to make it more equitable um, of a space. But I also think, you know, and to, to, to the other side of it, people have to show up, you know, they have to come, we have to program and let them know they're welcome. But also it takes a toll on me as an artist when I don't see the people I'm writing about um, in the audience. For my yeah. Book, I'm like, they're not here. They're not experiencing it. Well, I, I certainly appreciate everyone who appreciates my work, whether they share the background, because also some of these stories, you know, because then you get the, well, our stories are universal. They are, they're universal and they're specific too, you know? I mean, the specific is what makes it universal because like this very specific Black woman story is your story of, an, you know, you of another background and and economic means like we do we are each other we are very much each other socially you know and we can learn that through seeing each other's work but also sometimes you have to see yourself as well you need to see yourself you need to see i i started writing confederates because i said i need to see myself in history because i haven't seen myself i don't yeah you talk about black people not studying the the, uh, our role in the civil war i don't see myself in that ever i don't see myself in the Civil War. Where was I? Where was anything that's a reflection of me? I need to know that I was present and accounted for in history. That's some part of me, some, some extension of me. We all need to see ourselves. That That is not to be taken for granted. And so it is sad to me when I make this work to give us an opportunity to see ourselves and it's not in front of anyone that's going to see themselves. You yeah. know, maybe people will see themselves in a different way. You know, um, maybe you'll see yourself through these black folks and that is good. It's just not enough. And if and if, I should never think that's enough. Not if I'm really trying to do something um, transformative with my work. I can't think that's enough and you shouldn't want me to. Yeah, and you are doing something transformative with your work. I sat in uh, the Lincoln Center uh, audience to to watch Pipeline with a large group of, of young I think high school aged black and brown kids. 
and the matinee audience that was there. I actually, I don't know how I got that ticket. I was like online, I'm going to press the button and oh, I got it like a lottery (laughs) or something. And, and the beauty of experience was, I mean, that play is really about the lives of those people who I sat next to. And I needed to see it with them because I, I understand, right? I was, I was, you know, I, I'd like to think that I wasn't out of high school so far along, long ago that I don't right. remember what that was like to be a black person, <laughs> a black girl in a high school that did, that couldn't see me, hear, hear me, or feel me. But I think what was really important was sitting next to, you know, a young Puerto Rican kid, you know, and his mm-hmm. like feeling his being moved emotionally by that work deepened my connection to to what I was seeing in a way that I could mm-hmm. I could never have had as somebody who reads plays for a living, somebody who directs mm-hmm. plays for a living. I needed the visceral connection and the understanding of what it means to share the armrest with that kid. And um mm-hmm. and to, uh, to also know I'm watching him be transformed by it. I'm transformed through his transformation. And I'm That's so right. curious now about what that means for him years later to have that experience. And I think people miss that. That's why I asked the question because, you know, in order to come to OSF, you gotta, you gotta choose. You gotta get in a car and go a long distance. Mm -hmm. You gotta get on a plane. Mm -hmm. You gotta fly out here to the middle of Southern Oregon. You gotta catch some sort of bus to get here. It's not like it's a direct, it's not like you're gonna walk out of your your living room and go around the corner to a play, right? You have to have, make this choice. And so we don't, you know, people of color, have been coming to OSF for decades, just not en masse. Um, and these plays mm-hmm. for me, your play in particular, is a beacon for, for Black women, women of color, and for women to really mm-hmm. sort of have a, a place and a connection to what they're seeing with this understanding that the people around them get to benefit from the, that experience. So I love that you, the way you mm-hmm. expressed it. And the most important thing that, um, that uh, the thing I'm going to take, put in my pocket, is you write these plays to have that communal experience, that that is the mm-hmm. most important thing to see other people as you see yourself. And that is so, so deeply beautiful, specifically when I look at the women that you evoke in Confederates um, and, and their earnest desire to move through their circumstance and get to the other side. Um, that, that's why I started with this idea that I, what I feel is it is like you're in the circumstance steeped in a circumstance, in it, continuing to survive it because of your hope, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that um, as an industry, we, we have to continue to do that. You as a playwright and, and as, a, as a theater leader and a thought leader, me as an artistic director and, um, and a stage director, we still have to stay in it because we have to steep ourselves in our circumstance as we move forward towards hope. Um, yeah. Dominique, it has been so amazing having this conversation with you. I, you know, I took out my you pencil because I was like, I need to write some notes down with this sister because <laughs> the things are coming out your mouth. You know, your uh, head and heart are so full of so much, so much good. You know, um, so much good that people can draw from. It's so important to hear from you, not just through the words that you write on a page, but also from you, you as as a woman, as a mother, as a thinker, um, you know, as an artist, it's really important for me. It kind of, it's, it's a little bit of fuel. Um, so I hope Same. other people, as they hear this conversation, they feel that fuel because we all need it. We need Same. a little bit of your fuel. <laughs> Same, Nataki. Same. And I, I, you know, and, and for you to be the leader that you are and to lead with the grace and the compassion um, and the fortitude you know, that you have to, to push for change and to push for, to push us forward. No shift, no change, no pushing forward is comfortable. It doesn't feel always like, you know, like a a joyful thing to do in the moment. I do want to say that a friend of mine, you know, putting up a play many years ago when I was, you know, early twenties and we were, we were having a hard time fighting with each other, uh, putting up this show and uh, at the end of the, you know, when the show opened, he sent me, gave me flowers and it was a note inside that said, nothing moves without friction. Happy opening. You know, mm. <laughs> I said, that has stayed with me for the rest of my life. Like nothing moves uh, without friction. If yeah. we can just be comfortable with a little friction, 
uh, we know we're doing something. So uh, I think, it, and so if it feels uncomfortable, if you're having an uncomfortable experience sometimes with things changing and the status quo being uh, threatened or being um, shifting, really, because it's not threatened, it's not under attack as much as it is uh, moving, moving as it should into new space, being moved forward. Is, there's nothing wrong with that. So I, anyway, I see you as someone a big participant in that, just like I see these women in this play as being participants in their own liberation and thus the liberation of other people. I think that's same. I see the same for you and how you're moving OSF forward and how, but your presence there and your work there moves our field forward, moves our industry forward, which is also necessary. So, um, you know, I thank you for, for programming me there, I hope whoever comes, you know, I mean, of course, I want people whose bodily experience is represented on the stage to also be represented off, you know, but I also want everyone who experiences this play, no matter what their background is, um, to see themselves, find something to be convicted by uh, so that it can move you to doing something positive toward progression, and, you know, in our in our world and in our country. So, you know. Um, I thank you for giving me a chance to be able to do that with my work in that space. Dominique, it's been such a joy and a pleasure. Thank you. That was Nataki Garrett and Dominique Morso from Oregon Shakespeare Festival. You can catch Confederates, written by Dominique Morso and directed by Nataki Garrett, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival from August 23rd to October 29th, 2022. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Josh Horvath, Liz Lanier, Evren Odchikin, and Danya Washington from Oregon Shakespeare Festival for their work on this week's episode. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy and the entire literary arts staff, board and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock and for Andrew Proctor. And this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.